0: Welcome to the BioCurious Podcast, a place for you to be curious about your biology and discover new ways to upgrade and optimize your mind, body, and human performance. The guests on this podcast are trained experts in the fields of functional health, holistic wellness, and biohacking, who share my passion to provide useful and actionable information with all of you that I hope will help you to live your best life. I'm so happy that you're here and I'm excited to get curious together. Happy New Year, my BioCurious friends, and welcome to the season finale of season one of the BioCurious podcast. Season two of the BioCurious podcast will begin in January and I'm so excited for it because we have a new format, the new podcast episodes will actually be coming out on Tuesdays now instead of Fridays, which will give you guys a few more days during the week to get through your new podcast episodes. So I'm excited about that. But also, we have some new sponsors to support the BioCurious podcast, and I'm so excited and grateful for them because they will help expand my team and also expand some of the really cool things and offerings with the podcast for all of you. Also in Season 2, you can look forward to new and expanded intros to each of the BioCurious episodes that will not only overview what each episode is about, but I'll also give a little overview of the new things that I'm learning, new things that I'm trying, and just exciting things that are happening over in the bio-curious world. So you can hear, probably, (laughs) that I'm a little stuffed up. My voice sounds probably a little different than it normally does, and that's because I'm actually in my hometown of Reno, Nevada for the holidays, visiting my family, and unfortunately in Reno, it's in the high desert in the Sierra Nevada mountains, and so there's lots of snow, and it's cold, but there's this weird... Plant called sagebrush out here. And if you've ever seen like a tumbleweed, that's a dried sagebrush. And when they're not dry and when they're in bloom, which is actually in the winter happening right now, they have all these um, little green, kind of greenish branches on it. And then they have these yellow flowers that bloom out the top. And I am severely allergic to those flowers. And so I always struggle with my allergies when I come out here and it took a few days to catch up with me but now it's it's really kicking in so trying to eat some of those anti-inflammatory and and anti-histamine foods that will help me to to get over this allergy season I apologize ahead of time for any sniffles or um or if I cough during the podcast it's you know, just that season of allergies out here. Another thing that I wanted to share with you all is um, that I recently just completed a long-term fast. I did, I think it was 78 hours total. I was going for 72 and I just extended the fast while I flew out to the west coast from Atlanta because It's always better to fly in a fasted state because it really helps with the inflammation and the mitochondrial health during flight, which kind of you know, between the light and the recycled air and the travel and the germs and everything else, you can use as much of a boost as possible to your mitochondria and to your immune system. And so not eating while on a flight, whether you're fasting or if you just skip the food while you're traveling, is a better way to support your biology so that hopefully you don't get sick from the flights. And it will also just help you to feel better along with, you know, blocking out the blue light and grounding when you get to your location and drinking plenty of water while you're flying and keeping hydrated. Um, Those are some of my go-to tips for traveling, but um, the long-term fast was really a game changer because I felt like I didn't have any sort of jet lag whatsoever, and my sleep was a lot better when I got to my destination. So I recommend for you guys to Try that next time, especially if you're a fasting pro or if you intermittent fast regularly. Try to extend that a little bit during your next travel period, and hopefully that will help you as much as it did me to feel better. I'm also going to have a few posts that um, might be out by the time this airs about intermittent fasting, a little guide to not only how, did, how I do it and how and what the benefits are during each milestone. So, for instance, at 12, 16, 24, 48 hours and 72 hours, there are changes that happen metabolically that really support your biology. And so I'll overview kind of all the benefits and the timing of a fast. And then I'll also provide you with some tips on how to get through a long-term fast. So you can look for that. That's also in my newsletter that will be going out on the first. So you can check it out on the newsletter and then there will be a couple posts on Instagram on Biocurious underscore Kayla. You can also find the new Biocurious podcast Instagram page, which just launched um, I think two weeks ago. All the episodes are up on the page and all the new episodes will be posting there. So if you follow that page, you'll always get a notification when the new post is out. And it's also a great way to link up with the guests who are featured in each episode because I'll always link their social media in those posts as well. So for the season finale, we'll go ahead and get into it now. And again, let me know how you like the new intro. It's kind of open format now, and I just want to provide all of you exactly what the information that you're looking for. I thought I would wrap up this season of the podcast with a solo episode about yours truly. A few of you have reached out and asked some questions about me and my background and how I became a biohacker, and how I started this podcast, and so I thought I would give a little background about how the BioCurious podcast came to be. Also, something really special in part two of this episode that I'm really excited about is my mom came on as a special guest, and she shares her story about overcoming addiction and her journey in healing from addiction and trauma. And I thought it would be a really cool idea to include that in the season finale and um, an add-on to my solo episode because it's an important part of my origin story. And you'll hear in that part of the interview that both me and my mom get a little emotional because she's really just been through a lot. And I'm so grateful that she was brave enough to offer up her story and her knowledge for all of you. So, I hope that you guys enjoy this episode. I guess we can start all the way back from, like, my family history, which will give a little more context to who I am, where I came from, and, um, and how I got into biohacking originally. So, I'm originally from the West Coast, as you heard in the intro um, from Reno, Nevada. I was actually born in Roseville, California, and then my family is all from the Bay Area, and we moved up to Reno, which is in the high desert, the Sierra Nevada Mountains. It's a gorgeous mountain town, um, also known for its gambling and, um, and a, a lot of culture around drinking and partying and that sort of thing as well, so it comes with its with its pros and cons, but I grew up in Reno, Nevada. My family didn't have a lot of money growing up. I have um, three siblings, so I'm one of four, and two older sisters and a little brother. And we pretty much always struggled growing up um, financially, and we didn't always eat the best things, and we didn't always live the healthiest lifestyle, and it's just because my parents didn't really have that education. even working out wasn't really the culture when my parents were growing up. And as far as nutrition goes, everything that my parents have learned about nutrition has come from me later on in life. And so growing up, I ate a lot of like hamburger helper, mac and cheese, hot dogs, you know, white wonder bread, that sort of a thing. Canned, all, mostly canned veggies because they're a little cheaper and easier. and and a lot of um, top ramen and stuff like that. And now it's really cool to see that um, transition that my family and my parents have made since then based on what I've learned and shared with them. And now they they pretty much all eat more of like a paleo lifestyle, similar to what I do. So I'm really proud of them for making that transition later on. But that kind of laid the foundation, you know, what you eat when you grow up kind of lays the foundation to a lot of aspects of your health, as well as the culture that you grow up in. And so my family, you know, we dealt with a lot of struggle financially, but there's also a lot of mental health struggles within my family, both both on my mom and dad's side, and a lot of addiction kind of comes along with those mental health issues. From my biological dad's side, I was actually raised by my stepdad. My biological dad had a drug issue, and he also had a, a major brain injury when I was really little, and so my mom left him because of, you know, the, the drugs and the drinking and all of that when I was born, and when I was two, she met my stepdad, and that's who actually raised me for my whole life, thank goodness, Um, but my biological dad, right around that same time when I was like two or three, he got into a motorcycle accident, and actually his skull got run over by a semi-truck, and he was um, in a coma in the hospital, and once he he recovered from that. He was never really the same mentally and the, the drug issues and the, and, and everything just got worse after that. And, um, and then basically from there, he ended up spending the rest of my adolescence and even into adulthood in prison. And he would go, he would just go in and out of prison because of the, the drug issues and all of that. I kind of always had that going on in the background, but my mom kept me pretty um, removed from that, and so I'm really grateful that I had her to kind of protect me and buffer me from a lot of that stuff, but it it was always kind of there, and and so my mom and my stepdad raised me with my two stepsisters and my half-brother, but I also have an older half-brother from my Dad's side my biological dad's side and he ended up going through the foster system because his mom died of drug use when he was very young and um, and our biological dad was always in prison and so unfortunately he just went through the foster system and it was very kind of a, abusive and traumatic to him and eventually led to a partying lifestyle and when he was 37, he actually passed away from um, heart failure, which was a result of his early years of of partying and not taking care of himself. And he was a, a very well-known DJ down in the Sacramento area. And so he, um, you know, had a, a messed up circadian rhythm. He would oftentimes work until 6 or 8 a.m., Um, doing, you know, the whole DJ thing with the party scene, and even if you're not drinking and doing drugs during that time, it's still very taxing on your biology, and so unfortunately, he didn't um, make it through that experience. Anyway, (laughs) going back to my upbringing, um, while I was growing up, I'm always kind of... Planted the seed that I was going to be a doctor of some sort. She always told me I was going to be a brain surgeon, and I and I actually did want to go to medical school to be a brain surgeon. And then as I learned more and more, and got more into the health field, um, I actually got more interested in physical therapy. And so I got my undergrad in health ecology with um, pre physical therapy focus and so that was really covering all of the hard health sciences all the basic health sciences and from there i really i really got interested in health and nutrition and all the different aspects of life that really contribute to health and especially mental health and then there was a an event that happened when i was a junior in my undergrad at unr the university of nevada reno And um, that kind of changed the trajectory of my education and my career, which was um, my mom had an overdose on opioids, which you guys have heard me talk about a couple of times briefly. Um, And actually, my mom was gracious enough to come on during the second half of this episode to share that experience and that story with all of you guys. So you'll hear more about that in a little bit. But... That experience um, kind of shifted my focus into public health. I wanted to learn what is wrong with our healthcare system, that it's creating these addictions and more health problems than it's solving. And so I switched gears and after my bachelor's degree, I got my master's degree in public health and my aim was to work for the Centers for Disease Control and, and Prevention, which is what I do now. And I learned a lot from that. It's also a little disheartening because you can really see the issues that go along with the politics of healthcare and the politics of medicine in general. I think the biggest disappointment for me in public health is seeing how long it takes for really good research to actually end up in public health policy. A lot of times there's a huge gap between when we find amazing innovations in health science and health research to when that makes it to your doctor's office in healthcare policy, in standardized protocols, there could be upwards of a 30 year gap there, which is just really disappointing. So You know, after working a few years in this field, um, I wanted to continue my education, and now I'm in a doctoral degree um, for mind-body medicine and studying, again, the more of the practical side and practice side of health and working more on the research side. So I've I've kind of gone full, full circle where I was working in healthcare practice, um, physical therapy, did that for six years, and then switched over to public health program planning and implementation and public health policy and and the health science and, and the research side of public health and programming. And now I've gone back to the more individualized focus where I really want to understand the science behind all of the different core components of health and so I'm actually um, focusing in my doctoral program on neuroscience and biochemistry to really understand on a biological level what happens when we do these different biohacks and how to actually reach peak performance and especially as an athlete and as a very busy entrepreneur. You know you really need to be focused and clear and that's not always easy so that's where i am now education wise and i'm furthering my understanding and practice of biohacking both through formal education and also self-experimentation and i think the key to a healthy population is really individual ownership an individual responsibility of health, which really comes down to empowering each person with the knowledge and education and resources to take control of their own health and kind of move away from this healthcare system and this big business model of health insurance that really disempowers the individual. I'm sure you guys are sick of hearing me talk about this because it's my definitely my soapbox and my passion and it's why I do everything that I do, but this is the most important aspect of health is really understanding for yourself what works because we're all so unique and so individual and have different needs mentally, physically, and spiritually it's really important to merge all of those aspects and really understand the mind body connection. As far as biohacking goes, I actually got into that when I was still in undergrad. Um probably about 15 years ago I started running. Um and I sucked at it. I was horrible. <laughs> like I could only run probably a mile or less before just having to take having to walk and take a break and just being so winded. I also grew up with asthma, and so I kind of struggled to get through that, but actually through running, um, I've basically cured my asthma because I don't really suffer with it unless I have severe allergies or unless I get a cold or something like that, then it kind of flares back up. But running was kind of my gateway drug (laughs) into biohacking because I learned very quickly that you have to eat the right things, you have to fuel your body with the right things, to be able to perform at the level that you need to perform at physically to be able to run and then especially when i started competing a few years after that um, it was really important to have the right fuel and so i really got into the paleo lifestyle at that point and that's when i cut out grains and processed food and dairy and sugar anything that was inflammatory to my system that I noticed would really slow me down, and slow down my physical performance, but also really slow down my mental performance too. So it started with wanting to get into peak physical performance, but it it really soon after that evolved into wanting to have peak brain performance, peak cognitive performance. And that was kind of the side effect of the paleo diet. And then I started doing more research and reading some books. And eventually, as most of us have as our kind of gateway into biohacking, found Dave Asprey's work. And I started listening to that podcast. um, I think by that time, I was into my master's program in public health. And I started dabbling in, in Dave Asprey's podcast and kind of trying out little biohacks here and there to improve both my performance in school and my performance physically for running. And then around that time, I also started getting into biking and competing as a duathlete. athlete And now I'm actually on Team USA as a do-athlete and headed to the World Championships this year, which I'm super excited about, and it's also kind of like dumbfounding that a normal person like me who started out not being able to even run a mile in my early 20s, and now I'm number eight in the nation in my age category for duathlon, which is just kind of like (laughs) mind boggling, but it's just been a really cool evolution and experience, and biohacking is at the core of all of it. So it's been really exciting to kind of even look back and see my own evolution as a biohacker and as a lifelong learner in this field. And so I think that really brings me to present day. And um, actually last year, this time, I had had a lot of requests from all of you to start a new or to start a podcast so that I could talk about and share some of the things that I was sharing through social media and through the internet about biohacking, but through a podcast platform. And Through that platform, it's been such a learning experience because I've had the most incredible guests on the podcast that I'm so grateful for, and I swear that I've learned more through interviews for the podcast this year than I have probably in all my years of education. But I think it really kind of like tied my education together because you learn something through school and you research it in an academic setting. It makes sense from a theoretical standpoint, but then when you hear the story and you see the practical application in the field, it really comes full circle and solidifies in your mind. So I think it's been really, really helpful to deepen my understanding of these different biohacks, of the health science, of the biological repercussions of biohacks, both positive and negative. Um, And so that's just been a really, really cool experience and I'm really grateful for those of you who reached out to me and asked me to start a podcast because I had never done this before and I kind of just figured it out as I went and it's just been really fun and really expansive. I'm really excited for season 2 of the podcast and I can't wait to dive in. We have so many amazing new guests coming up and I cannot wait for all of you to Experience more and grow alongside with the BioCurious podcast. And so now we're going to transition into part two of this episode where my mom was gracious enough to come on and share her story with trauma and healing and addiction. And you'll hear a little bit more about how that intertwined with my own upbringing and how we're kind of working together to biohack her health and help her to get back to peak performance herself. Today we have an extra special guest (laughs) on the podcast. This is my mom, Paula. Hello. And she is brave enough to come on the podcast and tell her story about overcoming addiction and dealing with um, depression and anxiety and a lot of things that I know a lot of you um, also face and struggle with, um, but it's not something that a lot of people wanna talk about. And so if you've been a long time listener of the podcast, then you've probably heard little snippets here and there about parts of my mom's story and how she had an opioid addiction, um, almost died from it. Um, She ended up having a stroke (laughs) and was luckily able to overcome it and after lots of struggles and yeah. and then since then now she's um, kind of working through recovery and now she's on the path of healing which is a really long path especially when you're dealing with something that causes injury to your brain and long-term injury to your body and so I asked her if she would be willing to come on the podcast and share her story because I think So many people will benefit from her story and from, you know, just hearing a real person's experience and how they overcame addiction or how addiction even came to be. Because it is a there's an origin story. Right. It's it comes from something specific, and you all know that I talk about epigenetics a lot. So there is a genetic component where. Addiction comes down the lineage from your mm-hmm. family members, and a lot of times it manifests in the children and the children's children right. and so on, um, especially when it comes from both sides of the parents. However, um, your environment and where you live actually has a lot more to do with whether and how addiction manifests. Um, for instance, for me, addiction is definitely on both sides yes. of my family, right. both mom and dad, and throughout their history, um, you know, up the lineage. And luckily for me, it hasn't reared its head, but I think it has to do with the environment that I grew up in, which was a lot more stable than right. what you grew up with. Right. And I didn't have as many challenges. Um, so we're going to talk about all this juicy stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and mom is going to share her story. And so I'm I'm really happy that you're Thanks willing for to having do this. me. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's fun to have my mom and have yeah. her included and I'm spending the holidays here in my hometown of Reno, Nevada mm-hmm. where my parents still live and um and we thought this would be something fun to do. So yep. mom, yes. First of all, uh tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do. Okay. Uh, and then we'll get into your background. Okay.
1: My name's Paula and I've been married for twenty-eight, twenty-nine 29 years now to my fabulous husband Gordon, which is her stepfather, but it's really her dad. Yeah. He raised her. He did. So, um yeah, so my story is is I stay at home now. I try to um what what calls that when you I can't think of words. That's this okay. is part of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is part of it. I try to um, help somebody. You go out and donate your time.
0: Yeah, she's a, wow. definitely a, a volunteer yeah. and a advocate to help people. Right. And, you know, anyone who knows my mom knows that she's the person that would give the shirt off her back for anyone. And that also contributes to her story and what happened with her and the struggle that she has even now healing because mm-hmm. if you're always putting other people first, you it's really difficult to heal.
1: Right. Yeah. So yeah, that's um, my story begins. I mean, when I was younger, I never had an opioid addiction. Yeah. I like had you kids. I had C-section. It was never a problem ever, and I never thought I would be here with this, and. um I think in the early 2000s is when i started having trouble with my neck Mm -hmm. and that's where it all stemmed from right there they started like throwing pills at me left and right you know making them higher dosage giving me more i didn't know any better you know so i just took them the, the way they said well unfortunately i thought if if they're not working like this maybe i should take a couple more and that was The wrong thing to do you know yeah
0: well then you build up a tolerance and then you have what used to work when you took you know maybe 10 throughout the day turns into 20 30 40. um you know at the at its worst like just i think people would would really benefit to hear how many pills do you think you had to take per day like 20. yeah yeah Yeah. like a handful oh yeah Yeah. but
1: over the day it wasn't like Mm. okay here's 20 i'm gonna double down you know yeah but yeah easily 20. Yeah, Yeah, and it pretty much ran my life. It's like I felt like if I didn't have them, I couldn't go on. You know, I felt like I couldn't go to work. Or I couldn't like take on the day, which is totally not me. Yeah. You know, I always just like hit the day head on. And that really took over my life.
0: Yeah, so it was probably... Um, I was actually really unaware. It was my junior year of high of uh, sorry college when um, when the overdoses happened. That's where like the peak of everything. This is when it all came to a head. Um, but before that, this had been going on for a few years. And just because my mom's like a really kind of like high performing person and always like really energetic and go go go, um, it was a shock to me finding out that she had this addiction because I had no idea. Mm-hmm. She was still, like, going to work. She was doing everything. There were, like, mood things that I noticed. Her and I were fighting a lot, which also had to do with me being a teenager. But also with her, right. you know, being uh, having
1: mood swings and swings all from kinds that of drug. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah, so it really kind of, um it explains, like, the wedge in our relationship when I found out later, but... um but it was kind of a shock to me and my little brother and my sister. And your dad. My dad. He, he knew a little bit, but he didn't know the extent. Right. And so when that all came to a head or came, you know, she... One morning, what happened, um, I was at work and I got a call that my mom... My dad woke up and my mom didn't wake up in the morning and he couldn't get her to wake up. And so he called the... Um, ambulance they came and got her and brought her to the hospital and my dad's all freaked out and he's like I I don't know what happened Mm -hmm. like I'm really worried and so I left work came right over there and I couldn't get the doctors to tell me anything all they kept saying is what is she on what is she on and I'm like nothing what are you talking about she's not on anything tell me what's wrong with my mom like what's happening with her Is she gonna die what's going on and all they kept saying is, "What is she on? She's on drugs." And I'm like, "No, like what? Right. This is, doesn't make any sense." And so I was like, so frustrated with them. They wouldn't tell me anything, and all they kept saying is like accusing and like, "What is she on? We know she's on something. Just tell us." And I was as like, if you guys know. would know. And, well, and I didn't even know what they were talking about. Right. And so you know, after a really scary stay in the hospital and she had to be intubated and, um, you know, for that period she couldn't even talk because she had a breathing tube and so we couldn't like communicate with her and be like, what's going on? Um, And we were just fighting for a few days with the doctors and they were telling us she was on um, drugs and not even telling us what they were and we were telling them, no, she's not, there's something seriously wrong with her and you need to find out what it is. (laughs) And, you know, after all this, it, we found out that it was, when they explained that it was pain medicine, opioids, like, <laughs> I didn't even really know that was a thing. And um, and then it all came full circle and we, this, that's how we learned about it. Right. But, um, like, what was that experience like for you, like, being in the hospital and now you realize, like, your family knows. Right. You, you don't know what's going to happen to you. You don't even know if you're going to. Survive, like
1: Yeah, the biggest thing for me was the guilt.
0: Yeah.
1: That was huge. Because I love you guys so much. And the rest was just like, I didn't have my right side. I couldn't walk. But I knew I would walk again, and that was going to happen. But to
0: this day, I still live with the guilt. Yeah. The guilt is... The worst thing and right I definitely didn't help at that point i was like early i was like 21 um you know pretty selfish at the point no. at the time but also like i was scared i was mad i was disappointed mm-hmm. but i was also in survival mode too all i mm-hmm. wanted to do was get her into rehab and and i basically wanted this to go away as right. quickly as possible so i went into action mode and i was like let's we'll get her into rehab we'll figure out what insurance mm-hmm. covers and the problem was insurance really didn't give yeah. her anything. We, we
1: couldn't get, get any help we anywhere.
0: Couldn't, we couldn't get her into an inpatient rehab. No, nope. We couldn't get any help. So so at the end of it, what we got was pretty minimal, which was outpatient rehab support. Right. and a
1: support group.
0: And like a support group and yeah. some counseling that was yeah. covered by the insurance, right. which was not what she needed. She needed full-time support from yeah. professionals, especially because the family we didn't understand this so we couldn't help right and so that year because she wasn't getting the right support she had two more overdoses and by the time the third one happened was like at the end of that year um you know at that point I had just I didn't know what to do anymore (laughs) and I thought the best thing to do was just to like I would have to, like, cut myself off from the family, essentially, from her especially. But just, like, I couldn't be involved anymore. Right. And I I think that was the catalyst to, and fear of losing the family, was kind of, like, her rock bottom, in a way.
1: Oh, definitely.
0: And that's what got her to just decide to get started. It had had
1: to end. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I totally fell back into where i was and it was just like i didn't want to be there because it's so dark down there it's horrible you're by yourself it's dark you know you've got this going on in your head and you have a problem but you know you can't reach out because there's nobody there to help you you know so that was pretty rough and uh Thank God I had my family because they all supported me. I mean, when I got home, they had a list of things on the the whiteboard that we needed to do. And, you know, the first thing was quit my job. That was the first thing I needed to do. But, you know, they were really rallied around me and supported me. And without them, I wouldn't be here. But since then, since I started getting better, I went into I'm, in, I'm depressed and I have anxiety so it's hard for me to sometimes get through the day
0: yeah you know before we get into like where you are now and (laughs) and kind of what you're dealing with um let's talk about the real origin story so we talked about like the immediate origin story but all of this the depression the anxiety which is something that you had struggled with for quite some time Um, and then, you know, with the different injuries and getting the pain medication, which kind of numbed your feelings to the the things that happened
1: before. Yes.
0: So, uh, my mom has an interesting upbringing, Mm -hmm. um, very challenging. And so what, what was that like? Like, where did you grow up? How did you grow up? Okay.
1: Well, I grew up, um, my mom had different men or husbands and, None of them were my father because I never knew my father. Yeah. So, um, of course, one of them, when I was like six, decided he was going to m- molest me. And that's just one of the things. Yeah. And it just went on from there. It was just, I mean, it seemed like it was tragedy over tragedy. You know, it was like, wow, you know, my best friend was murdered couple streets a couple doors down and it just seemed like it went on and on and um, I just when I was young it was just too much to carry on so like when I got into school and stuff I drank alcohol you know instead of turning to drugs but that is a drug mm-hmm. so you gotta like I realized it now that I would had a problem way back mm. and so it's just buried really deep yeah yeah
0: and so your mom was essentially like a single mom, and, and she
1: she, all, uh, she had um, addiction to yeah. barbiturates and painkillers and mm. stuff like that.
0: Yeah. So,
1: and I watched her uh, when I was little. The ambulance, I just see her feet going in the ambulance. You know, I never knew what was going on. So, I seen that uh, several times. And then me and my mom moved out, and um, I was like in seventh grade. And she came home one night, and she's like, "Honey." She goes, just know Mama loves you. And I was sleeping. And I was like, of course, I love you too. She goes, if anything happens to me, you go live with your grandma. And I said, well, nothing's going to happen to you, Mom. Stop it. Because it was like 1 o'clock in the morning, whatever it was. And so she went into her bedroom, and I heard this loud pop. And I got up, and I ran in there, and she had shot herself. So that was another thing. It just, like, went on and on, you know.
0: But that isn't how she died
1: no she died of an overdose
0: so how old were you when she shot herself
1: i was probably 10.
0: and then and then the addiction she she recovered
1: yeah she was supposed to be because she had the addiction the whole time i was young yeah and then she was supposed to be getting better i was living with my grandparents then when she shot herself i had to ask my grandparents if i could live with them and so I did. And, and she was supposed to be getting herself together, getting a real estate license and all that stuff. And then one night the phone rang and grandma answered the phone and I'll just never forget that curdling scream. And that was it. You know, my mama was gone. So, yep, that was a big one. So.
0: Yeah. So from there, You lived with your grandparents, which Mm -hmm. were my great grandparents. You guys lived in the Bay Area. Yes. And you were in high school then?
1: I was. Well I moved there when I was in seventh grade. And then I went there and graduated high school.
0: Okay. how old were you when your mom passed away?
1: I was twelve. Okay. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so I never met my grandma, but I knew my great-grandma mm-hmm. and my great-grandpa who's still he'll, alive. Yeah, today. he is.
1: He's going to outlive all of so, us. Yeah.
0: He's a, he's an old-school, hard-working man from Oklahoma. Yeah. Yep. And just, uh, he'll be around forever. Yeah. He's a good man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So he raised you, but how, was that difficult? Like, how, how was it living with your grandparents?
1: Oh, and it had its challenges, believe yeah. me, because there was like that disconnect from my age to their age, you know? They didn't understand how kids actually were, Yeah, you know? So that was difficult for sure. And then my grandparents were moving to Oklahoma and they said, You can either come with us or stay. And I was 17 and I said, I'll just stay. So, and that's when I left home. I'd been out on the sh- I'm out on the, <laughs> on the street, not on the street, but yeah, I've been out on my own since then.
0: Yeah, so you moved in with your neighbor at the time, mm-hmm. which was your best friend's mom. Mm-hmm. And um, and that was actually my grandma. Right. My other grandma. Grandma Jensen. Growing up. and um, And then you lived with them to finish out high school. Mm-hmm. And then... From there, kind of moved out on your own, right? But um, in high school, I think from from this situation and from how you what you saw growing up, I think that affected your choices in partners. Oh, from there, big time. So, talk about that a little bit. Like, what? Who were your partners? And like, how did how did that all go? Because I know that you had some challenges with different. Did.
1: I didn't feel that I was worthy enough. Yeah, I always had these men or boys, I guess, that would um, hit me and hurt me. I mean, and that's I went through that forever, and um, even with her biological father, I went through that with. But once she was born, we were out of there. And then I met Gordon, which is your dad now, Mm -hmm. and he has been so wonderful to us. Yeah. But I tell just the men that I went through. I thought, wow, I had to go through all those guys just to realize what a good guy Gordon is. You know,
0: yeah, because
1: he's so good.
0: When did you realize that you deserved better?
1: When I left your dad.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. When I had you, we need we both needed yeah. something better.
0: And how old were you then?
1: Twenty four.
0: Twenty four, and you were with my dad right. for how long? Nine years. And then you met. And then after you left, you were mm-hmm. single for oh, yeah. I lived with your aunt Mom. Bonnie. Yeah, mm-hmm. lived with my aunt Bonnie, which was fun. I remember some of those times, <laughs> or at least through photos. Yeah. It was it yeah. Was we had fun. Time. Her and
1: her bag to Doodle.
0: Yeah. Uh, and then you met Dad, mm-hmm. my stepdad, but my dad. Yeah.
1: He uh, lived across the street. Yeah.
0: Yeah. When I was two. Yeah. Yeah. And and then um, and then we all moved in together, but with. My new dad came, new <laughs> sisters. sisters. Yes. So I had two stepsisters, and they had come from a very challenging mm-hmm. background as well, um, with some different different aspects of abuse right. and, um, you know, everyone yeah. at this point was pretty poor. Right. <laughs> and, yeah. You know, I, well, growing up, we didn't really realize that we were poor. We just thought no. it was like normal.
1: So yeah, no, yeah. we. We may have been poor in money, but we were rich because we had each other.
0: Well, one thing that I've talked about before to you guys is that my mom always made Christmas like a huge deal, Mm -hmm. and so we'd always have like tons and tons of gifts and Mm -hmm. all the decorations, and no matter how little money we had, it was always like a huge special thing, and so it was always like... The best times are right. always around the holidays. I
1: love Christmas. Yeah. Yeah. And I've passed it on to you and Sherry and
0: mm-hmm.
1: and you guys. I I know yeah. you enjoy it. You're my Christmas baby. You do it all the time. You do it up like mom does. So Yeah. yeah so anyway, so that's, I mean, my life is pretty boring. Like right now though, <laughs> I'm just like trying to get through this um, depression thing and um, that's been really hard, and I'm still try I'm still dealing with it.
0: Yeah. So, what is after you were able to overcome that period mm-hmm. of using opioids? Um, what was the road to recovery like? I know that there's a period where you have to transition onto a different medication, which isn't an opioid. You, it isn't an opioid, but it's still uh-huh. not that much better, and it's still like you know. I had to, like,
1: cut all ties with anything like yeah. that. I had to, like, just go away and get my head together and do it for me and my family. Because that was what was important to me. Unfortunately, it has messed with my brain. The whole thing. I mean, my I can't think right. And I was an um, office manager for many years. And after this happened, I lost everything. I couldn't work. And... I mean that right there just put you in a tailspin cuz you can't like help bring some money in for the family or and that was a real big part of my depression.
0: Yeah. Well, my mom's always been like a big go-getter. So at some point she had three jobs. She was always working really hard, always kind of like the the star at work. She was always like getting the promotions and like being the leader and whatever she did. And then when she couldn't work anymore and her brain didn't work like Mm -hmm. it used to and she couldn't like you know crunch the numbers and do the different aspects of running a business that she used to do um, that really like took away her independence and Mm -hmm. her confidence and so now I feel like that is just as much a part of your healing journey as definitely actually like healing your body physically and your brain physically but healing yourself emotionally and finding a new way to be confident a new way to have independence right.
1: and i'm still working on that yeah i haven't i haven't got there yet yeah but i'm trying i every day i try i try to do a little something more you know and maybe some days it doesn't work and i may fail at it but i got to get up and do it again tomorrow and try and try i got to make this thing think yeah because it's it was broken and um through listening to your podcasts and seeing you know, a doctor.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So you guys um might remember episode 1 was with Dr. Titus Chu mm-hmm. and um he did an episode on the top 5 best <laughs> brain biohacks yeah. or brain hacks. And um after that episode and after getting to know Dr. Chu, um I asked him if he would be able to take my mom on as a patient. Mm-hmm. And since then, he's been working with her. To, um, to help heal her brain. She, she's kind of you know, going through the functional medicine right. aspect, but she's got issues with her balance, and yes. she's got issues with her coordination, and she's got issues with, um, with word retention, <laughs> and reading, and all the kind of cognitive things that go along with having a stroke. Um, That she's rebuilding and so he's been working with her on that aspect And then she's also been working with a personal trainer Mm -hmm. to rebuild her strength um, And going to the gym. Yeah, and so um, Besides those things like what are what are some other? Things that really are helpful for you because I know that You know addiction is not something that just goes away. No, it's always there. It's always there. It's always there How do you deal with that and then on bad days? Like, what
1: is that like? Well, you know, I I don't have bad days anymore. That's the good thing. And at first it was like, of course I wanted, you know? Yeah. And your body goes through aches and it just, you get sick, it's horrible. And it's like, I don't miss that at all. And I'm just sorry I had to go through all that to realize it. Mm -hmm. But when it it was happening, I didn't know what was going on. I had never been through withdrawals or anything like that. And so when that happened, you know my doctor was just shoving more just take more just take more just take more and it's like i, mean, I, I just can't stand that i just i don't know western medicine yeah it's horrible
0: well that was part of the reason why um you know when i was a junior in college all this happened and i really saw firsthand with trying to go through the insurance and get help for her that there's a major issue with our Healthcare system, mm-hmm. and so I kind of wanted to switch gears. I was going to be a physical therapist, which is you know a great career path and helps a lot of people. <laughs> but I realized that um, you know there's more work to do in the healthcare, like policy and healthcare programming right. side of things. So I went into public health, and which has only kind of shown me even more what <laughs> the issues are, you know, um, working for CDC, mm-hmm. they have a, a opioid program where they are trying to um, work on it, but mm-hmm. they're only working on really one aspect, um, which is a big component, which is changing the prescribing practices. Oh yeah. So that was definitely um, part of my motivation yep. in switching gears and mm-hmm. working in, in the health, the, the program planning and implementation right. side of healthcare. Instead of the practice side of it, but um, and you know I think we have a lot of, a long ways to go. But I'm really proud of my mom because she's finally taking ownership of her own health. Instead of you know when you don't have the education, when you don't have the knowledge, um, mm-hmm. you basically rely on your doctor and you believe that they they have your best right. interests at heart. And not that they don't, but they're not work they're not able to work from the Best research, and they're yep. not able to go outside of the like very um, uh, traditional or um, conventional right. medicine. And they don't practice.
1: get to the problem, they right. just take care of the
0: right. Yeah, and none of her doctors who you know, when she was having these different pains and issues, nobody asked her about her upbringing,
1: <laughs> nobody no. asked
0: her about her past traumas, no, nobody asked her about her anxiety and depression in conjunction with the. Pain medication, which is, you know, they they go together, but they're also it's very important that a doctor who's prescribing pain medication knows that you're already taking any sort of antidepressants or even sleeping medications because all these things interact together. Right. Um. So it's been a um what ten years. years? Yeah, it's been ten years now since all of that, Mm -hmm. and you've made strides in your health and your mentality and, you know, there's been a lot of therapy and there's been a lot of different kinds of medications that you've had to go on and off of. Figure Um, it out. Yeah. And so for like the anxiety and depression thing, that still doesn't really go away. Right. And so that's something that you still... I struggle
1: with if, yes all the time um sometimes depression just creeps up on you and you don't even realize that it's there mm. so then you gotta like you know try to get yourself in check and you know I may like be down for the day in the bedroom because that's how bad it gets yeah. so yeah it's it's uh, that's a horrible thing it, it can cripple you
0: yeah so what are some things that help you with that aspect? Uh, I know they're, right, the, they're getting the right medications right, first of all because right. they test you out with all different right. crazy ones.
1: Well, going to the gym and working out—that's like my number one thing. Yeah, it makes me feel good. It makes me feel good about myself. It gives me energy. I love it. That was—that's the biggie. Yeah. Um, I like to read. You know, I just got to keep my mind going. Yeah. Because if I don't and I just sit here, it'll go. It'll make me crazy. Yeah. So just keeping myself busy. I love gardening. Yeah, That's my thing. Yeah. So just fun things like that, you know. Yeah.
0: And now, you know, with everything that she's gone through, you know, she is a great resource and advocate for people who are also going through this issue yes. and it's more normal than you think. Yes. And there's a lot more people going through this than you think. Yes. And it could be somebody who functions normally that has no opioid <laughs> addiction or it could be somebody who functions normally that is struggling with anxiety right. and depression.
1: Right. And don't be afraid to step up and talk to somebody because somebody's going to listen. That's what you need to know. Yeah. You know, there's always somebody there that'll understand. You just think there's not, you know. Yeah. So, and you got to like realize you have the problem. Yeah. That's part of it too. you got to say to yourself, wow, I've got a problem here. i got to deal with this somehow.
0: Yeah. What do you think if there's somebody who's like either dealing with some sort of addiction and maybe it, nobody knows about it, maybe they feel completely alone, or maybe they're dealing with anxiety and depression and don't really have a support network, <laughs> what are some things that you think that they could do that
1: um, be helpful? i they have hot ones you can call yeah and i've had to call those are they helpful they are helpful. okay and you can like they'll like help you get through it somebody to talk to a therapist i mean definitely a therapist for sure because they will listen to you without you know any objection or you know definitely get a therapist if i would have had a therapist i would have Changed everything. Yeah, you know.
0: Not till after all of this happened did you get right therapy, right, and help. Um, so it kind of sounds like a support network is yes. like the most important thing, definitely. And maybe getting somebody outside of you know your family, right. outside of the people who are directly there in right. it with you, exactly, so that they don't have a horse in the race, right?
1: So yeah, definitely. Some type of therapy. I mean, don't be afraid to go out there and look look on your own You don't need to have somebody, you know, hold your hand. You're strong. You can do it Get a friend somebody that you know, don't you don't have to get a family member get a friend. You know that somebody That understands what you're going through. Uh, I have a friend Cindy She got me through this big time if it wasn't for her and my family. I wouldn't have made it you know she was there she came and bathed me when i was in the hospital yeah. and i couldn't stand or use my hand so friends are really important and reach out to them yeah you know
0: i know that that can be hard though like for you when you were in in the middle of it right you were afraid to reach out to right. your family you're afraid to tell any of us what was mm-hmm. going on right so when you're completely alone like that you said there's hotlines but mm-hmm. I wonder if there are other other resources that people can use. Well,
1: you know, Kayla, when we were like looking for me, when I got out of the hospital, you've seen how limited it was. Yeah. So, you know, depending on where you live and what they offer, like here in Reno, they offer nothing. They don't offer much for, yeah. for people like me. So, you know, just look at your, what your city offers. There's stuff there. You gotta reach out and go find mm-hmm. it. Cause that's really important
0: there are support groups um I know that like the for families of people who are addicted which my mom is not the only one that I've um gone through addiction with I've gone through with many family members um and my old partner and, and um and their family as well and so there's a group called Al-Anon which mm-hmm. provides a lot of resources and again I didn't Want to let anybody know that I needed help, so that was a great place for me to go right. and ask for help without anybody that I knew right. having to know about it, but it was really helpful right so I think that that 's always a really good resource
1: well, yeah i 've heard I know that Alanon's good for the the family yeah. to get through that. Um, It's just, I mean, I went to AA after this or NA and, you know, that helps somewhat, you know, it keeps you busy. They talk about stuff. Yeah. They share their stories and and you find out you're you're not alone. Yeah. They're out there.
0: And there's worse things happening. (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) Which can kind of make you feel a little
1: bit (laughs) better. A little bit better. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that's just keep your chin up and keep plugging along because you got this. You got it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, if somebody ends up reaching out to me and they want to ask you some questions, would you be open to that?
1: Of course. If I could help one person, I would love if you guys called me. Somebody.
0: So if anybody knows somebody going through this or (laughs) you are, um, don't hesitate just to message me. You can direct message me on Instagram or you can email me. Kayla at gmail.com. And um, and then I can get you in touch with my mom, which is yes. kind of cool. Yes.
1: <laughs> well, thanks for having me, baby. Yeah.
0: Thank you for sharing you. your story. I love you too. Right.